Good morning. Hope all of y'all are doing well today. Is our unmask. Okay, maybe it just hangs there. That's fine too. All right, good morning. I hope all of y'all are doing well today. Uh, my name is Blake Hickman. Uh, it's my pleasure to be able to share with you from God's Word today. I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15 this morning, as Jordan just read for us, um, as we continue in our new series through Mark's Gospel uh, that we'll be in for this year. Uh, I hope that it will encourage you, as I know that it has encouraged me and is encouraging me, um, as we look into what it means to, uh, to live in the kingdom of the king. And so as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll look back into these verses real quick and then dive into our text this morning. So pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We do thank you for an opportunity to be able to gather and to know and to understand more about you as you have revealed yourself through your word and as we read in your word as you have revealed yourself through the sending of your son. And so, Father, today as we talk about that, as we look into these pages, as we see from Mark's gospel that this is where Jesus declares himself, your son declares himself, declares who he is and why he has come, that um, our hearts and our minds would be uh, moved, that we would be encouraged, that we would love you more, and that we would see our need to rest in your grace, to turn from our sin, uh, whether that is for the first time to trust you as Savior or turn from our sin because we are saved, but that all of us would be moved to rest in the gracious rule of King Jesus. And so we, may we see that in your text today. We ask you to work through weakness in me and weakness in all of us here, and may Jesus be magnified, and we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 15. I know Jordan just read them, but I want to read them again for us these verses here as we look together into God's Word. So I'm going to read you follow along with me there. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Everyone loves good news uh, in a day that seems to be filled with an endless loop of news that is not good. Good news seems to be appreciated all the more. Whether it is in small things or large things, we love good news. And good news is usually something that we share. And we do this because others might need that encouragement as well, but even more so, we do this because this good news tends to overwhelm us and most often causes us to want to respond with sharing it with joy. And if this is true with good news that affects our day-to-day -day lives, how much more should it be true with the gospel? In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper opens the first chapter with these Words. He says, I pray that one of the effects of this book 
will be that the gospel of Jesus Christ is heralded, proclaimed, announced, declared, broadcast in all its magnificent fullness for all the world to hear. That is what a person does who has heard good news. He tells it. And the gospel means good news. Good news is for proclaiming, for heralding the way an old-fashioned town crier would do. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king, hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swear fealty to your sovereign, and rise a free and happy subject of your king. As Mark lays this before us in these chapters, this is the good news that we have before us. This is the good news that John the Baptist was preparing the way for the people to hear. John's message was not yet that this king has come, but his message was this king is coming. Be ready, be watching, he's coming, and it's, it's going to be glorious. John was helping to train our eyes to look for the king, to wait for his identification so we would know to follow him. Our text today continues from last week where we saw John the Baptist give us clues to the identity of the king who would come. And our text today will help us see the king identified and ushering in his kingdom. And this is what Jesus does in these verses. There is much to see in this text today, and we will not be able to plumb the depths fully in our time today. But there are three things that I hope we see from this text this morning, and they all relate to how our king identifies himself and relates to us as his people. And we see this first where Mark picks up in verse 9 with the baptism of Jesus. And in these verses, what we see here is that Jesus identifies and is with us in our sin. As Matthew pointed out last week, Mark writes and wants us to read with urgency. Everything moves fast in Mark's gospel. For Mark, there is no time to waste. What that means is that there is a lot of context that isn't explicit. Mark assumes much about his readers. He assumes there is some prior knowledge of events and context. And there is something not to be missed at the beginning of verse 9 here, even before Jesus is baptized. Mark lets us know that Jesus is from Nazareth. Now to you and to me, we may know that already. And to these readers of this gospel, they may have known that as well. But this is important for us as we see our king identified. That a king would come from Nazareth was shocking. This helps us understand why Nathaniel, when he was called as a disciple, would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? It wasn't that Nazareth was bad. It was that Nazareth was not significant. There was nothing prominent or important about Nazareth. It's why Mark locates it for us in Galilee, so people would have a better idea where it was. No one would be looking for a king to come from Nazareth, primarily because people had not heard of it. Why does this matter? 
It matters because it helps us to understand Jesus' purpose in coming. Jesus was not who was expected as the coming Messiah, and his mission was not what was expected of the coming Messiah. And where he comes from gives us a clue to this. And this is important as we move to the bigger point of these verses. As we see in our verses today, these verses are all about identification and how our king relates to his people. He was not from a palace in a prominent place. No, he was from a working family in a place that no one was looking for. And here we move to his baptism and we see in these verses that our king is with us in our sin. He identifies with us in our sin. A question that has been asked through the ages is why did Jesus need to be baptized? And this is a great and valid question. John the Baptist had the same question of Jesus in Matthew 3, where we see the parallel story of Jesus' baptism in the Gospel of Matthew. How could the one who came, away to take, to, came to take away the sins of the world be baptized by a sinner in identification as a sinner? If he was without blemish or stain, why go through the act as one who is blemished and stained? And that is actually the answer. Our king who is above us had to become like us, not for himself, but for us. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this puts it in great words. He says, however, for Jesus to qualify as our redeemer, it was not enough for him simply to go to the cross and be crucified. If you ask a six-year-old child, what did Jesus do for you? That child, if he or she has been to Sunday school, will answer, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's true. But that is only half of the matter. If all that was necessary to redeem us was for a substitute to bear the punishment that we deserve, Jesus did not have to be born to Mary. He could have descended from heaven as a man, gone straight to Golgotha, died on the cross, risen, and left again, and our sin problem would be fixed. But if Jesus had only paid for our sins, he would have succeeded only in taking us back to square one. We would no longer be guilty, but we would still have absolutely no positive righteousness to bring us before God. So our Redeemer not only needed to die, he had to live a life of perfect obedience. The righteousness that he manifested could then be transferred to all who put their trust in him. Just as my sin is transferred to him on the cross when I put my trust in him, his righteousness is transferred to my account in the sight of God. So when I stand before God on the judgment day, God is going to see Jesus in his righteousness, which will be my cover. That is the gospel. Our king does for his people what his people couldn't do for themselves. But there is more here. So much more here. Because here, not only do we see Jesus, but we see the full Trinity in his baptism. And in these verses here and in the ones to follow, we see a connection back to the beginning of all things in creation. In creation, we see Father, Son, Spirit, full delight and contentment in the Godhead. See, Father, there speaking through the Word who would be made flesh, the Son, the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, full delight and contentment. Full delight and contentment in creation. And all was good. All was good. 
And we'll see this as we move to our next set of verses. We all know we, then we get to Genesis 3 and sin, and now creation is marred. But here, in these verses, we see the mission of our king. All that was undone by the first Adam, the second Adam will set right. All that our first father messed up, our king will come to restore. And he will do this resting in the love of the father and the power and the comfort of the spirit. Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, on this passage helps to understand that in the early church, they would have seen this image of the Spirit descending like a dove and automatically would have gone back to creation to connect the image of the dove hovering over the face of the deep, fluttering. It would have been a striking image to them to see this and to hear this and to experience this, to see the fullness of the Godhead there declaring the message of the kingdom. And this helps us to understand what happens in these next verses because in the first account, we see Him with us in our sin. In these next verses, we see Him with us in our suffering. We see this beginning in verse 11. Led by the Spirit, Jesus is now in the wilderness facing intense temptation. And sometimes for me, I think I miss the weight of where this temptation took place. Took place in the wilderness, which is actually utter desolation. But when I think wilderness, I think like Jesus is on a camping trip. Now, you need to know this about me, okay? Camping is not my thing. I know it would shock you by my rugged, outdoorsy exterior, but that is not me, okay? Now, I am not anti-outdoors or woods, mind you. Uh, I do enjoy time there, but it will not be said of me when my time comes, here lies Blake Hickman, great outdoorsman and pioneer of the Western Wood, Okay? But in my mind, I read these accounts, and my mind always goes to someone backpacking out deep to withdraw and reflect. Like I think of Jesus wandering out to spend time with his father, but that's not what was taking place here. Mark's word usage here clues us into that. It says the Spirit immediately drove him. There is urgency and force here. Not that Jesus was forced to go. No, not at all but that he was compelled and felt the urgency of what was waiting for him there. And what was waiting for him there was hunger, was loneliness, was a threat of wild animals, and there was intense temptation. Now Mark doesn't go into detail like Matthew and Luke do on the specifics of the three major temptations that Jesus endured from Satan. I would encourage all of you to read all of those on your own in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when you have some time. But Mark does let us know, and Luke alludes to this as well, and this is so important. It wasn't just those three temptations that Jesus endured. Those three were the culmination, but the temptation began immediately and it consisted of the entire time He was there. Jesus endured this. And there's a couple of things to note here, okay? A couple of things that we need to see. First, once again, notice the contrast with the first Adam and Jesus. The first Adam in a lush garden paradise with nothing withheld from him materially fails when faced with temptation. Jesus, in utter wilderness, 
lacking all material provision for his human need, yet he endures. And this should comfort all of us deeply, deeply, because whatever your trial, whatever you may be facing today, your king knows and he has faced it himself. Whatever your trial, whatever your struggle, whatever your temptation, whatever you are enduring, he knows and he is with you and he is for you. Dane Ortland, in his beautiful and helpful book, Gentle and Lowly, I've mentioned this to you before, unpacks the heart of Christ for us as we endure all that is in front of us. And here are three brief snippets that help us see our King, how he is with us in our sufferings and our temptations. He specifically, Ortland is, speaking out of Hebrews 4, but we'll pick up from there. Here's quote number one. He says, sympathize, Jesus sympathizing with us. It's not a cool or detached pity. It is a depth of felt solidarity such as is echoed in our own lives most closely only as parents to children. Indeed, it is deeper even than that. In our pain, Jesus' pain. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. Continues, the reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is that the difficult path we are on is not unique to his. He has journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine. It is also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles like a doctor who has endured the same disease. Finally, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Our king knows our struggle and has endured our struggle and he will be with us every step of our struggle. And this leads us to these last section of verses here today because if all we're hoping in is someone who wants to identify with us and wants to give us a pat on the back and tell us he's there with us, then our hope ultimately will disappoint us. But ultimately what Jesus is here to do is to identify himself to us as our king. And we see this in these last verses today. And with this, we see how quickly Mark has moved to get us to the point. This gospel begins with John proclaiming that the king is coming. This is so beautiful. Don't miss this. It begins with John declaring that the king is coming. But in Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, 
It is Jesus himself who proclaims that the king has come. It's not someone else declaring it about him. It is Jesus himself revealing himself to us as our king. Let's go back to how this begins. John is saying he's coming. He's coming. Be looking. He's coming. And Jesus doesn't need a town crier. He doesn't need a servant to go out in the street. No, here in Mark's gospel, Jesus heralds his own kingship for all of us to see. And not just to see, but to be invited to enjoy. And this is many times where we miss what Jesus is proclaiming here. Jesus is here to restore what has been ruined. He is here to set right all that has been made wrong. That is why all the connections to what our first parents got wrong matter here in the beginning of this gospel. Jesus isn't here just to fix you. Yes, he can and will do that. But that is a tiny part of a much bigger whole. Our king is announcing his kingdom. And he is letting everyone know that that time has come. And he's also declaring to them that this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that they have ever seen. Tim Keller, in much of his preaching, refers to this as the reality of the upside-down kingdom. We've already seen a hint at what Keller means by discussing Jesus being from Nazareth. A key to the upside-down kingdom is, as Keller puts it, its citizens will pity what the world prizes, and they will prize what the world pities. What does that even mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we reject all that is in this world, but it does mean that we should be rightly suspicious if it falls under what the world would put forward to us as ultimate. Power, prestige, domination, material possession and gain, success, status, self as the ultimate end, knowledge as an end in itself, and the list goes on and on and on. We pity or we hold loosely or examine with great care all that this world prizes. And then we prize all that this world pities. Humility, service, suffering, sacrifice, generosity, community, right living. For some of these, it means we actively seek after them. For others, it's not a call to seek after them, but like for the example of suffering. When they do come our way, we don't reject them, but we rest in it, we rest in it knowing that our King is there with us. And then we wait, because the kingdom is right now, but not yet. So we wait. We, ate for, we wait for all that is sad to become untrue, we wait for the final and ultimate ushering in of the kingdom when we will rest forever in the final and never-ending reign of our King. So what do we do with this text today? How do we apply it to our lives today? First is this. In your sin, see your King. See Him with you and for you in your place and rest in grace today. This may mean for some of you, this is the first time, whether you're here or you're at home, this is the first time that your eyes have been opened to your sinfulness and to the beauty of the Savior and His sacrifice for you. 
And my encouragement to you is if that is you, repent and rest in the gospel today. It's what Jesus says right there in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. In our suffering and temptation, see our King. See Him with us and for us as we endure and rest in grace today. Note here, Jesus doesn't lord His successful endurance over you. How did these writers find out about this if Jesus was in the wilderness alone? It would have been Jesus Himself that would have had to have shared this with others. Jesus Himself who would have had to to share the intense temptation and struggle that He was under. Jesus Himself that would have had to share with them the intense feelings of loneliness and hunger and isolation. He didn't make it through and come to His followers and say, hey, mic drop, be better than me. That's not what He did. It's not what He did. He let them know His struggle so they would know that He had been there before. How did Jesus communicate the intensity of His situation to them? He sees. He knows. He endured so you can have hope to endure as well. And finally today, don't just see your King in your sin and see your King in your suffering, but ask yourself today, who is your King? Who is your King? We are all tempted to live as sovereigns of our own individual kingdoms. Every one of us faces that temptation. This is true whether you profess Christ or not. Today and each day, let's ask ourselves, whose kingdom am I heralding? Whose glory am I displaying? Whose gospel am I proclaiming? Am I heralding a kingdom of self? Am I heralding a kingdom of earthly power? A kingdom that proclaims to rest in work and not in grace? A kingdom of man-made religion attached to earthly kingdom and governmental structures? Or am I heralding the kingdom of the only true sovereign? You guys know by now, I love old hymns. The hymn, there's something about that name where it says that kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there is something about that name. And sometimes I think we sing hymns a little bit too lollipopish. Because the kings and kingdoms of this world will end. And it will be very bad on that day for them. But it will be very great for those that have our allegiance to King Jesus. If our hearts are moved to serve any king or kingdom that is opposed to the one true king, may we have courage and faith to rest and trust in the only kingdom that will endure forever. So today, may we begin to see all that our king wants us to see and all that our king offers us as we are invited to live with him now so that we can live with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this gospel, for this good news, 
that was put forward to us. Father, we thank you for our time last year looking at the words of the prophet Isaiah who was pointing forward to so many things and so many times we had the privilege of saying that Isaiah didn't have the privilege of seeing all that was going to come. But Father, you have made that available to us. That the king would come, that the kingdom would come, and that someday, finally, eternally, we will enjoy it forever. May that be where our hope and allegiance lies. May we be moved to trust you. May we be moved to rest in you. May we be moved to serve you as our king forever. Amen.